The Tragical History of Plan the Nine, Part the One, is sponsored by the Revival League, bringing old-time radio back to life, and the Dino Hotel, the pride of Lakewood, Colorado. This play is rated parental guidance age 13 and up. Parents are strongly cautioned. Some material may be inappropriate for children under the age of 13. listening to a holiday special presentation from the Independence Broadcasting System. Happy St. Patrick's Day from all of us at IBS. It's Tuesday, March 17, 1959. Good evening. I'm Chetley Bricklestick, Cultural Director at IBS. You're listening to Opisodion, the network's single highbrow program that attempts to spoon-feed actual culture to you unwashed swine out there in middle America. No Lawrence Welk or Clobber McGee and Irish Dave for you tonight. This St. Patrick's Day, we proudly present Edward Wood's The Tragical History of Plan the Ninth, or it was, it was subtitled on the first folio, A Most Excellent and Lamentable Tragedy in Verse, as it has been diverse times performed by the Lord Chamberlain, his men, at London, Stratford, and elsewhere. This play will attempt to take you, Joe American, and transport you back in time when our immortal bard, Edward D. Wood Jr., trod the boards in the theaters along the south bank of the Thames to set the tone of our government-mandated elevated content. Even our commercials will harken back to Edwardian times when Queen Elizabeth herself reigned over jolly old England. We hired noted Ivy League Edwardian scholar Colonel Ryan D. Smith to translate Plan the Ninth so that you, Joe American, may understand the sensitive nuance of Wood's language. Colonel Smith's verbal annotations will appear throughout the play. Colonel, the stage is yours. Thank you, Chetley. Not much is known about the life of Edward D. Wood, Jr. Alas, it was a time when record-keeping was scanty, births often went unrecorded, and personal correspondence was rarely kept. Yes, for us mid-20th century Americans, looking back on this distant time, it was almost as if Wood burst fully formed in doublet, high heels, and angora sweater upon the completion of his beloved Bellator, or Beautiful Door Theater, located in Stews upon Southwark, one of the more popular neighborhoods in Elizabethan London. Ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to pull the string on the curtain separating us from this distant past. Down, down, swirling through the centuries, we plunge like bell divers through the murky mists of time and space. Finally, we are here, Edwardian England. What's this stirring within the Tudor walls of the Bellator Theater? I believe it's opening night of the very first performance of The Tragical History of Plan the Ninth. In 1564 was born a bard Whose words and days of yore were avant-garde Now gather we in global brotherhood To celebrate the work of good at wood A scary show of saucers and suspense You'll barely notice that it makes no sense A sham program, no man, the wits damn quick and delivered in pentameter, I am pick. 
Solarinite electroguns and tools A military plan, a ship of fools Whose occupants want only to say hi And we the Earthlings be Stupid, stupid Now come along with me What magic we will see The tragical history Like Macbeth, Plan the Ninth, Part the One, opens in a dark and supernatural place with a seer and fortune teller of old, the amazing Criswell. He is a dapper man with silver blonde curls, booming voice and elegant manner. There's a certain self-confident flamboyance about him, and he is our Greek chorus. He will set the play's tone and describe its setting for us. Let's listen in as Criswell speaks the famous prologue, shall we? To all you gentles give I greetings fair. You come, brave souls, because of future days, of sights fantastic, visions glorious in time yet to come. Are you enamored? And be it so, for truly is it so, that future time is where we'll spend our lives. Save time already past, and this time now, which the present is. But let that go. Remember, gentles, that future events such as these will affect you in the future. For if future events are still to come, they must needs be in time that's still to come. If still to come they are, then come they've not, not yet. Or else the present would they be, or else the past, I truly else the past. For neither now nor then are yet to come. Thus it remains, and the remainder thus. Perpend, the time, good gentles, finally is at hand. We may unfold to you this horrid tale. Oh, wonderful, oh, terrible, oh, woe. A tale it is of chaos, blood, and death. A tale of dead men risen to damned life. A tale of hordes invading from the stars. We tell it as it was, nothing extenuated nor aught set down in malice, but in fact, based only on the testimonies true of those who this depraved ordeal survived. Indeed, friends, t'was a secret closely kept, a dark and fearful thing kept locked away as if the locking could the thing undo, as if the darkness could be banished by further darkness still. Well, fie, I say. Thus wide we'll ope these doors and let the light, the kind, life-rendering light of godly truth, upon these dark and secret matters shine. Let innocence receive its just reward. Let blackest guilt be swiftly punished. My friends, can your hearts stand these shocking facts? Can souls willingly witness such horrors? But friends, the truth must fully spoken be. And so prepare yourselves, good gentles all, and screw your courage to the sticking place to hear the tale of Plan the Ninth from space.
The play begins with a gloomy tableau. We find ourselves in a fog-filled graveyard, a fresh-dug grave with fresh-dug grief. And in shuffles an old man, played for the moment by famed Elizabethan tragic actor Bella Lugosi. The old man is followed by the Reverend Lynn Lemon carrying his holy Bible, and various weeping mourners bearing a coffin with sextons with shovels slung nonchalantly over their shoulders. The mourners gather around the grave to lament and give comfort to the old man, whose grief will not be assuaged. The sextons, professional grave diggers used to this line of work, stand quietly to one side until the grave is ready to close. The amazing Criswell reappears to guide us through this sad scene. All we upon this pain-benighted globe know time to live there is and time to die. But death, whose cold hands grasp even the seeming well, is yet a shock to those who are left behind. And now, as sunlight fades, these mourners watch as clay encloses the beloved wife of this man, whose white hairs and beard do tell of life too long, of grim years outlasting his will to live. O churlish sinking sun, thou'rt not just sundown of the waning day, but sundown also of his happiness. Yea, sundown of the heart for this old man, and shadows of his grief do overcloud the very light of reason in his mind. And so remembrance o'er the little group doth, weary and tear-stained, depart for home. And as the sextons their grim task do face, strange visions in the air again taking place. In our next scene, we find ourselves in the cockpit of an aeroplane. Enter Jeff Trent, a pilot, and Danny, his co-pilot. But soft you now, good Danny. What o'clock? But quarter to the hour of four, good Jeff. A good time do we keep my valiant friend. For lo, where the great San Fernando Valley doth stretch below us like an emerald, a brilliant jewel set in a ring of dust, the desert interrupting with its gleam. I. This sparkling throne of film, this sceptered town, this earth of majesty, this seat of stars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this precious stone set by the silver sea, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this L.A. A goodly sight. Good Dan, call up the tower and get thy bearings for to land the plane. At this time of the night, perchance he sleeps. Quiet, A-12. Burbank Tower doth here call thou. Were I asleep, you'd never get on the ground. Faith, Mac, well do I like thy wit indeed. A goodly jest, yea, marry a fine jest. Perhaps a jest attempted, buddy, Faith, a jest was not accomplished by my troth. Suddenly, the cockpit begins to shake and tremble. A-12! Oh, mackerels of holiness! A flying saucer is lowered from above upon a wire as if it did float upon the air itself. The effect is flawless. Oh, soft! What light through cockpit window breaks? What dreamlike vision fills my staring eyes? A disk of silver floating in the air as though churlish gravity, which all things like miser grasping gold, doth to the earth draw in, hath no mastery over it. Indeed, it is as though the frightful disk were by a line suspended from above, perhaps a fishing line, 
whose gossamer surpassing thinness renders to the eye the string itself all but invisible. Tis strange. Tis wondrous strange. Impossible. Hey, 12, art thou in danger? Answer, please. Enter Edith, a flight attendant. How now? What monster's shaking in this plane? Do thou look for thyself. What in the world? Well, that's nothing of this world, my Edith Fair. Quiet, A12. Burbank Tower doth here call thou. Art thou in danger? Please thy answer straight. Oh, Mayday! Mayday! Just as suddenly as it appeared, the flying saucer withdraws. Stand thee by, Burbank. Fair Edith. Thinkest thou the passengers saw aught of this astounding interlude? Oh, most unlike, for sleep doth rock their brains. Tis well. We'll now prepare to land the plane. Since we have hitherto concealed this sight, let it be tenable in your silence still. And whatsoever else shall hap tonight, give it an understanding, but no tongue. To this do swear with every solemn oath, so grace and mercy at your most need help you. I swear, good Jeff, your faith. And I, good Jeff. Tis well indeed. Make ready all the land. The time is out of joint, O oh, cursed spite, that ere we saw this saucer in its flight. We find ourselves back in the graveyard, where the sextons are busy digging a grave. Come, my spade. There's no ancient gentlemen, but gardeners, ditches, and grave makers. They hold up Adam's profession. Was he a gentleman? He was the first that ever bore arms. Why, he had nothing. What art thou, a heathen? How dost thou understand the scripture? The scripture says Adam digged. How could he dig without arms? I'll put another question to thee. If thou answerest not to the purpose, confess thyself. Go to. What is he that builds stronger than either the mason, the shipwright, or the carpenter? Uh, the gallows maker. For that frame outlives a thousand tenants. <laughs> I like thy wit well in good faith. The gallows does well. But how does it well? It does well to those that do ill. Now thou dost ill to say the gallows is built stronger than the church. I'll gal, the gallows may do well to thee. Toot again, come. Who builds stronger than a mason, a shipwright, or a carpenter? Aye, tell me that, an unyoke. Mary, now I can tell. Toot. <sighs> Mass, I cannot tell. Cudgel thy brains no more about it, for your dull ass will not mend his pace with beating. And when you are asked this question next, say, A grave maker, the houses that he makes last till doomsday. Faith, didst thou not hear? Mary, I did indeed. This likes me not. Tis not meet to hear such alarms when none were expected. Let us hence, neighbor. Oh, there thou hast it. Let's away. Enter Vampyra, a bloody yet sexy ghoul, with outstretched arms and a tattered yet form-fitting and curvaceous zombie cocktail dress. Her skin is pale, her stare vacant, and her hair long and black. She advances upon the hapless sextons. Alack, what bloody wench is this? Vampyra reaches for the sextons, who both suffer simultaneous heart attacks. Oh, I am slain! He dies. Oh, I too am slain! He also dies. They're both dead. Thus I, a creature of the blood-stained night, do claim the lives of these two shallow fools. 
My masters, being strange from outer space, will show my labor's thank with rich reward. I'll lug these guts into a neighbor tomb. Gentles, good night indeed. These same sextons are now most still, most secret, and most grave, who were in their lives foolish, prating knaves. Come, sirs, to draw toward an end with you. We now find ourselves at the old man's house, the same old man from the graveyard. The old man shuffles slowly out the front door, weeping. Enter the amazing Criswell. And now we again join the good old man. Grief filled the house up with his absent wife, lay in her bed, walked up and down the room with him, put on her pretty looks, said o'er her words, remembered him of all her gracious parts, stuffed out her vacant garments with her form. The flowers that did in his dooryard bloom seemed but the faded roses of her cheeks. Confused by his great loss, the good old man did leave that house of pain, ne'er to return. Cursed truck, thou hast robbed me of my life. Oh, I am slain. Oh, old man, thou art dust and food for... <sighs> for worms, dear Bella, fare thee well, great heart. Ill-weaved ambition, how much art thou shrunk. When that this body did contain a spirit... Bad movies for it were too small abound, but now two paces of the vilest earth is room enough. This earth that bears thee dead bears not alive so great a Dracula. Adieu and take thy praise with thee to heaven. Thy ignominies sleep with thee in thy grave, but not remembered in thy epitaph. Thus ended here a long unhappy life. Lugosi sleepeth now with his dear wife. And so ends Act the One. And now a brief and historic word from our sponsors. Edward Wood's The Tragical History of Plan the Nine, Part the One, will be back right after these Elizabethan messages. Are you a rebel, a poser, or merely a twit? Then have I got the facial haberdashery for you. Hi, 5th of November revelers. Guy Fox here, thwarted conspirator of the gunpowder plot. When I'm not attempting to blow up Parliament, I'm busy selling my new me masks. Yes, these precision handcrafted paper mache me masks are made in the likeness of me, Guy Fox. Someday, Twerpy college kids are wearing my likeness at protests. Someday, I dream that clueless wearers will have no understanding that I'm not some romantic freedom fighter, but simply attempting to replace the Protestant despot with a Catholic despot. 
and the mask with its plucked eyebrows, pencil-thin mustache, and pasty complexion bears almost no resemblance to my actual bushy red beard and ruddy visage. Need to remain anonymous, planning an act of sabotage or civil disrest, or merely posing foolishly in a rebellious way to piss off your parents? Then leave your holiday bonfire celebrating my capture, torture, and execution, and grab a me mask. That's me masks. They look like me, Guy Fawkes. Hey, it's a me, Papa Gregory VIII. I'm reaching out to you today to tell you all about my new invention, the Gregorian calendar. You may say, Papa Gregory, we have been using the Julian calendar for almost 1500 years, and that's a fine. But did you know you would lose almost 0.002% of your year every year? That, my friends, is a highway robbery. Which is why my new calendar extend the year from 365.25 days to 365.2425 days. That's the Gregorian difference. You take the extra time to do anything in your life, like pray, visit the loved ones who died from bubonic plague, or simply fulfill your feudal duty to your lord. That's at the Gregorian calendar, now available anywhere the calendars are sold. Good evening, friends. Are your gross humors out of balance? Are you feeling overly sanguine, bilious, choleric, or melancholic? Then good tidings to you this very day. Hello. I'm Harbottle Grimesby Prunepungle, gentleman barber surgeon to the royal court of her most high, mighty, and magnificent empress, renowned for her piety, and all gracious government, Queen Elizabeth by the grace of God, monarch of England, France, Ireland, and Virginia. <coughs> and I'm here to tell you about my cupping services, an amazing curative process from the mysterious Orient. Is your lady out of humor? Well, to bring her levels of bile and phlegm back into alignment, I will vigorously cup your wife. Nothing brings old Prune Pongle more pleasure than cupping a woman in distress. <laughs> I will cup and cup her until she is properly drained and exits the discreet back room of my barber shop with a smile upon her lips. Every maiden of blue blood deserves to be cupped by old Prunepongle. <laughs> I will also bring my humor alignment to bear by cupping any husbands in dire need. Yes, many male members of the nobility and gentry have been thoroughly cupped by me. <laughs> I cannot cup enough gentlemen in my quest to see them happy and in good health. As a gentleman barber surgeon, it is my extreme pleasure, nay, my duty, to cup. So remember, if you feel imbalanced and down on your luck, old Prunepongle is here to cup and cup. You are listening to a holiday special presentation of Edward Wood's The Tragical History of Plan the Nine, Part the One, from the Independence Broadcasting System. Happy St. Patrick's Day from all of us at IBS. And now we return to our regular scheduled program. We return to the foggy graveyard. Enter the Reverend Lynn Lemon and Mourners bearing another coffin. They put the corpse into a crypt and console one another. 
Nearby, Vampira hides and looks on. Enter the amazing Criswell. And now, good gentles, let us join these mourners, as in the crypt they lay the good old man, while all unknown his dead wife watches them. One woe doth tread upon another's heel, so fast they follow. First his wife, then he. Ay, Mary, tis a tragedy indeed. But soft you now, and tell me, he that knows, why this old man was buried in a crypt while cold and stony earth received his wife. A superstition of some sort, I think. Your answer is enigmatical, sir. This small detail important seems, and yet I'll take my oath it'll never more arise. Alack, let us away. For look you there, the sun, like parting lover, creeps away but slowly, grudging that which calls him hence, and leaving scarlet kisses as he goes, adorning the cheek of night with comely blushes. You mean it's getting dark? Aye, that it is. If it were said, twere best, twere said quicker. Come, let us away. The two mourners start to leave, but then discover the bodies of the slain sextons. Alack! Oh, help! Murder! 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 With fiery speed alarums raised were, and watchmen to the scene at once dispatched. We'll rejoin as this watch enters the fray, or seen by stout Inspector Daniel Clay. Enter Inspector Daniel Clay. Clay is a massive, slab-like man in a dark suit and fedora, with sausage fingers and a sweaty bald pate. His face is like the carved, graven idol of a heathen god. He is accompanied by Lieutenant Harper and Patrolman Larry, who busy themselves inspecting the corpses of the two sextons. The two mourners hover nearby, distraught. Alas, what foul and bloody deed is this? Who found these bodies, sir? A man and girl. Tis well. The coroner, hath he arrived? He's departed in now. Anon should come the mortuary cart to bear them hence. Hast thou taken their examination? What statement we could fairly take, if faith? For truly we tried to question, whilst they, distilled almost to jelly with the act of fear, stood dumb and spoke not to us. Tis not strange, for truly such a bloody sight as this, to anyone with eyes, would be a fright. Good Harper, hear me now. Dispatch a man to take this fearful couple back to town. Do thou thyself take charge of this grim scene. It shall be done, Inspector. What of you? Methinks this graveyard I'll explore a while. Perchance a clue lies here among the dead, awaiting living eyes to spy its worth. Oh, fie! In inky darkness such as this, once past this warm perimeter of light, a blackness so complete shall fall on thee, thy hand shall be a stranger to thy face. Fear not, Lieutenant. I shall light the way with this torch I have taken from the car. Oh, have a care, good clay, for this foul night already hath brought portents ominous. These dead men here, and strange lights in the sky, alarums and revolts, and the moist star upon whose influence Neptune's empire stands, is sick almost to doomsday with eclipse. These portents like me not. Tis said in Rome, a little ere the mightiest Julius fell, such harbingers preceded that foul act and even the like precursor feared events, as prologue to the omen coming on, have heaven and earth together demonstrated unto our climatures and countrymen. What sayest thou? I like this darkness not. Oh, fear me not, Johnny. I'm a big boy. 
There are two or three big boys, Inspector Clay. Good Larry. Larry, where art thou, sirrah? I'm at thy elbow. And my elbow itched. Tis only me to scab should follow such. For that I'll owe the answer, Lieutenant. Behold these wretched corpses lying here, so mutilated by such vicious force, that very personhood is stolen away. Tis as though some wild cat did fall upon them, and with claws dripping in congealed gore, unlace their very skin. Tis certain so, and by the mass do you comprehend that stench? Indeed, to miss it were impossible. Oh, hark! The coroner's men do arrive. Away from churchyard thus go these two men, but to return to churchyard soon again. We find ourselves in the Trent family's backyard garden. Enter Jeff Trent and his wife, Paula. Methinks that is the fifth siren this night. Tis some disturbance at yonder churchyard. For coming home, I heard a hue and cry, and saw a great commotion amongst the stones. But what it signifies, I do not know. Well, well, the morning paper will tell all. Dear husband, where art thou? Thy noble mind seems still the clouds to traverse while thy frame sits restless here. Oh, Jeff, bring down thy brain from heights thus lofty, and do speak to me. Art thou distracted? Ay, Mary, I am. Oh, what care doth my husband's mind distract? Thy worries, dear Jeff, are my worries too. For when I took thee for my husband, Jeff, I took not just thy joys, but to thy pains, to call my own in love along with thee. Full many times hast thou, seeing me weep, been fellow to my pain, and like a captain who spies a greater host across the field, my pain hath fled before thy welcome strength. Are we not equal yoked? Then, Jeff, thy cares are mine, too. Dwell I but in the suburbs of your affection, if it be no more than Paula is Jeff's harlot, not his wife. Speak, husband. I saw a flying saucer. Holy shit. Holy shit, indeed. But say, dear husband, dost thou mean a saucer from outer space, a vessel strange that sails the nightish black as wooden barks to sail upon the sea, that plies the vasty darkness twixt the worlds as though the endless leagues between them were a mere annoyance to be overleaped, a puddle that can be crossed in a stride? Oh, say, thou meanst a vessel containing a race of beings native to the stars, not men, but things whose minds have mastered space, whose intellects o'erleap our human brains, making mock of man, and we, fools of nature, so horridly to shake our dispositions with thoughts beyond the reaches of our souls? Dear Jeff, is this thy claim? It is. Alack! A fearful sight. Twas shaped like a cigar, or it would be if cigars were saucer-shaped. Its passage filled our plane with blinding light, whilst, like unto a hurricane in little, a powerful wind did blow us from our course. Alas, didst thou report this dreadful sight? Indeed, upon that moment did we call by radio, and our grim tale relate. And thus were we enjoined to keep this vision full close within our breasts till we should land. But soon as our wheels touched the blessed ground, great generals did intercept us all. Dire men, whose medals gleaming on their chests, did tell of great authority and power. To secrecy did these men swear us bound. So why I'm telling you I do not know. At any rate, this compelled silence my ire doth raise. These saucers have been seen for years. They're here. The public well should know. 
But canst thou nothing do? No more, good Jeff? Nay, nothing to be done, and there's an end. Last night I saw a ship that sails the stars, and nothing say I for compulsion. Oh, fie, am I a coward and an ass, thus muzzled and constrained by army brass? Alack, what wind is this? Jeff, let's away. This sudden gale pretends no good, I say. Yet again, we find ourselves at the graveyard. Because Edward loved graveyards, and was hard up on cash, and had to make the most of a set. Enter Lieutenant Harper, Patrolman Larry, and Patrolman Kelton. They are about to be knocked to the ground. They are knocked to the ground. Blow winds and crack your cheeks! Shit. Holy shit. The unearthly wind continues as Harper and Kelton flee. A flying saucer is lowered from above by string and makes its way across the sky. The effect is flawless. But soft, anon comes Inspector Daniel Clay. He spies the saucer and pursues. In another part of the graveyard, enter the old man, but not the same old man as before. Bella Lugosi is nowhere to be seen. The old man is now played by an entirely different player, with cloak drawn about his face to conceal his identity. He is noticeably taller than Bella Lugosi, and at least 30 years younger. The effect is flawless. But wait, he speaks. To recast or not recast, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outraged critics by using an obvious body double, or to leave to death the dead, to die, to sleep, no more. And by sleep, to say, we end the prospects and the hopes of cast and crew. Indeed, the death of the headliner would on any world that sane scuttle the play. Yet here I stand in place of great Lugosi, plucked forth from dismal obscurity, and like child ill-fitted to his father's robes, make show of greatness when I've greatness none. Can this cloak with which I do hide my face, together with stock footage basely mixed, well hide the stigma of my counterfeit, or muffle up the shame of my pretense? Can inky drapes of satin cloak the truth? The great Lugosi's changed for someone base. This truth will out. This truly I do fear. Truth to itself reveals, though none else near. Enter Inspector Clay, holding a torch and investigating the sinister goings-on in yet another part of this apparently endless foggy graveyard. The air bites shrewdly. It is very cold. And dark it is as well. Aye, blackness deep. But wherefore dost thou curse the blackness, Clay? For without blackness of the soul, indeed, thy occupation's gone. The murderer, the thief, the roguish cutpurse, the footpad, the caddish spoiler of virginity. These blackest villains give thy life purpose, and thou earnest thy bread in catching same. And without bread, O oh clay, what wouldst thou be? 
Why, thinner, mighty thinner by my truth. Ha <laughs> ha. Just too broad, perhaps. Aye, very broad. As broad as my expansive waist, in faith. But soft, enough of this. To business, Clay. To pluck out the heart of this mystery and justice bring to those poor murdered men. Now to thy work, Inspector Daniel Clay, and solve this mystery ere the light of day. Egad, the undead advance. Enter the ghoulish vampire from the left, and the old man, er, the second taller one, from the right. They flank poor Inspector Clay. He's surrounded, um, unless he runs forward. But still, it's a terrifying scene. Alack, what bloody corpse is in my path? Clay draws and fires his pistol. To no effect. Vampira and the old man fall upon him and attack, knocking Clay's fedora to the ground. The bullets fail. O Clay, now art thou slain. Thy body now, thou render up to death. To zombieish oblivion thy brain, as nightmare ghouls do smother up thy breath. O taverns, thou dost now a patron lose, whose appetite hast ere fattened thy purse, and fattened him for slaughter, so it proves. And then, undead damnation, much the worse. Alack, if only capons could defend from these dead corpses' horrible advance. But rich food, which clay, ever wast thy friend, now slows thy feet as death thy life supplants. Thus cracks a noble heart, and so I die. May Beef Wellington meet me in the sky. Time for go to bed. As Clay falls, the ghoulish figures melt back into the darkness just moments before Lieutenant Harper, Patrolman Larry, and Patrolman Kelton rush to the scene. Alack, did I hear good Clay scream? Tis certain so, and sure that ghostly light which even now we saw streak through the sky did portend doom for dear Inspector Clay. But soft you now, there lies the valiant Clay, now mortal Clay, unless I miss my guess. Aye, sir. His eating days are at an end. Alas, poor Daniel. I knew him, Kelton. A fellow of infinite girth, a most excellent appetite. He hath eaten me under the table a thousand times. And how abhorred in my imagination is it now. How my gorge rises at it. Here hung those lips that supped I know not how oft. Where be your giblets now, your brown gravy, your pallets of turkeys that were wont to break even oaken tables with their weight? Not one now, Clay, to mock your own grinning, quite chop-fallen. Now, do get you to my lady's chamber and tell her, let her paint in an inch thick. To this favor she must come. Make her laugh at that. He's mutilated like the other two. Lieutenant... Dost thou entertain the thought the flying saucer we did spy overhead did somehow cause this rash and bloody act? It may be so, but one thing certain is. Inspector Clay is dead, murder most foul, and some villain is blamable for it. Lieutenant, the good Clay's untimely death does bring the honors that thou looked not for. 
A heavy mantle drapes thy shoulders now. For Harper, thou hast now the charge of watch. Tis honor I would gladly lay aside for it, methinks, brings with it naught but cares. Oh, good patrolman, Kelton. Yes, my lord. Do get thee to the car and radio. The coroner you herewith must call back so to investigate this foul attack. And now a brief and historic word from our sponsors. Edward Wood's The Tragical History of Plan the Nine, Part the One, will be back right after these Elizabethan messages. Are your doublets creased and wrinkled? Are your bodices saggy and crinkly? Do you wonder if your neighbor Farmer John's cow might be a devil's familiar and that Farmer John himself might be consorting with Satan? Then look no further. It's time to try Maggie Clithrow's express laundry and witch pressing. With our torture devices and heavy, bone-breaking stones, we will squeeze out any wrinkles in garments or confessions from suspected witches. Yes, we pile weight upon crushing weight that will take the breath away from any of Old Scratch's minions, all while smoothing clothes to a pleasing crispness. The righteous shall smother horribly and go on their just reward. The wicked will confess and be further brutalized and burned at the stake. An unkempt laundry will be as smooth as a baby's bottom. No starch, no devil, and no wrinkles. Just good old-fashioned, agonizing torture, and spine-snapping weights. So give Maggie Clithrow's express laundry and witch pressing a go. Like an innocent man being crushed to death, say more weight. If you say no, you just might be a witch. If you're tired of sitting round and going broke, why not make a fresh start at Roanoke? It's a Sir Walter Riley masterstroke. It's a brand new colony of merry blokes. Attention all able-bodied men and sturdy women of breeding stock. If you are a farmer, blacksmith, soldier, gentleman barber surgeon, mason, apothecary, witch presser, huber scruff, or general tradesman, then join us today at the brand new Roanoke Colony, where all your dreams will come true. Roanoke is poised for growth and prosperity, as sure as the friendly locals will welcome us with open arms. Wealth, health, and a bright, bright, very bright future await anyone who signs up for this colonial expedition to the new world. If you're interested in the adventure of a lifetime, just carve Croatoan on a fence post near you to receive a 15% discount on passage to beautiful Roanoke Colony. Why not make a fresh start at Roanoke? You'll meet so many friendly native folk. Give you all the tobacco you can smoke. Just don't get it mixed up with poison oak. Roanoke, where all your troubles will vanish mysteriously without a trace never to be heard from again. It's a Sir Walter Riley masterstroke. Why not make a fresh start at Roanoke? Good evening, friends. Harbottle Grimesby Prune-Pongle here again. Gentleman Barber Surgeon to the Privy Council, Star Chamber, and mummified remains of Cardinal Woolsey. If you suffer from toads in your skull, or struggle with stones of folly in your noggin, then let old Prune-Pongle use his trepanning knives to relieve the pressure. Yes, trepanning. With absolutely no relief from the pain, I will use a series of highly dirty chisels, scrapers, and skull cutters to grind a hole into your living bone, exposing your brains to the elements. I will scoop out any offending grey matter with a long lead spoon, then pack your gaping skull hole with health-giving dung, dried frog, and arsenic. <coughs> 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 
you will feel a sweet relief at my ministrations. Or at least, I'll feel a sweet release. <laughs> and while we're at it, old Prunepongle has a two-for-one gentleman barber surgeon special. While I drill into a slurry of your hair, blood and bone, my clumsy, untrained assistants will inject, via pipette, a flood of heated mercury into your urethra. <laughs> your mandrake root will never feel better. <laughs> Why, all my clients cry out in joy at these double treatments. At length, in fact... A leather strop in your mouth to stop the noise might be less disturbing for those just in for a haircut. <laughs> so remember, I scream, you scream, we all scream for trepanning! <laughs> you are listening to a holiday special presentation of Edward Wood's The Tragical History of Plan the Nine. Part the One, from the Independence Broadcasting System. Happy St. Patrick's Day from all of us at IBS. And now, we return to our regular scheduled program. Act the Three opens, unsurprisingly, in the graveyard. Enter Reverend Lynn Lemon, Lieutenant Harper, Patrolman Larry, Patrolman Kelton, and mourners around another grave. No greater love, tis true, can have a man than that he lay his life down for a friend. Inspector Daniel Clay was such a man. The bell hath rung upon his great career. The largeness of his neck you all do know, but forget not the largeness of his heart. And now, bereaved friends, we lay him down and send him to a rest that is much deserved. Yea, much deserved, but oh so premature. Now, brave Clay, we must needs with clay and clothes. So gather round, dear friends, and say farewell. For valiant Clay, we now sound the last nail. Lieutenant Harper empties a basket of candy bars into the grave. Sweets to the sweet, farewell. Hoped I to see thee wedded to a chef. I thought thy marriage table to have catered and not have strewed thy grave. Patrolman Kelton throws a bag of pork rinds into the grave. Play him in the earth, and from his large and much inflated flesh, may pork chops spring. Patrolman Larry throws a baked ham into the grave. Oh, treble, treble, woe, fall ten times treble on that cursed head whose wicked deed thy most ingenious sense deprived thee of. Take you this ham, my friend. We'll venge thy death, we swear, and there's an end. Enter Criswell as our chorus. As three flying saucers are lowered from above on lines and made to fly over enlarged photographs of great landmarks, the which are held by stagehands. The effect is flawless. Oh, see, dear friends, these flying saucers three that now soar in the air o'er Hollywood. 
a woman startled by the fretful sight, straight telephones the captain of the watch. And now the saucers hover o'er D.C., that marbled city wherein power's enthroned. An army convoy moves into the field to beat back the otherworldly invaders. And brave Tom Edwards, colonel of this force, decision great must make in Earth's defense. Brave Edwards shirks it not. He gives the call to fire. And then, as swiftly as they'd come, the saucers part. And e'en to the radar's all-seeing eye are they invisible. Enter Colonel Edwards and a soldier. By my troth, I would not this thing believe without the sensible and true avouch of mine own eyes. Tis a sight that likes me not. Fret you over yon flying saucers, sir? Fret I? Of course I fret. Why think you else we try to blow those saucers from the sky? These visitations must a reason have, and truly I do fear they bode us ill. Visits? That would indicate visitors. Thou hast a flare, soldier, for the obvious. But stay a little while, sir, I do pray. I'll straight draw to my point, which is but this. How meet is it with hospitality that we do greet such guests with cannon fire? In sooth, we have not always fired at them. Is it possible? Yea, for a time by radio we tried to speak to these strange craft when e'er they came, but no response did our entreaties bring. And then the aliens attacked a town, a small town, I'll admit, but still a town of people. All towns of people. Shut up. Point being, people in that town did die. Oh, villainous. I never heard this before. The news was smothered up by higher power. Full often is the public so abused. For when the mighty lord meets one mightier, he thinks it is not meet his vassals no, lest from his besmirched banner they should fly and seek a better shelter with his foe. So like a crafty angler, the wise lord stirs up the mud in which his subjects feed. And so, their water muddied, they know not, that they swim but further into his net. Thus, news of earthquakes, fires, and floods do doubt, for they may cover give to news still worse. And as for flying saucers, brave soldier, of rumor still they are, officially. Well, it looks like we beat them off again. Aye, but why do they come? What is it they want? They, sir? I know not they. Tis no such fuss. A training exercise is all this was. Aye, Mary. Soldier, there thou dost me proud. We've nothing done today but shoot at clouds. We now find ourselves in the heavens, in the inky black void of outer space. Enter the dread alien ruler in black vest and silver turtleneck, followed by a humble messenger. My dread lord, your space commander has returned from Earth. My thanks, good Sirrah. Send him in to me. And now shall we see how the Earth shall fall. My captains capable, their planet weak. All their worlds a stage, and all its men and women merely players, to use and discard as I see the need. But which plan shall we use to conquer Earth? Our conquest having nine stages. At first, it's spiders with bites radioactive. Next, a bomb, 
whose fallout will turn everybody gay. Then third comes monkeys armoured with broadswords, who'll hack and slice until the earth does fall. And after that, a pelican whose beak is big enough to swallow up the world. The fifth plan useth poisoned hummus dip. The sixth, contaminated nacho cheese. The seventh, will try the gay bomb again, in case Earth needs more gayification. And plan the eighth involves a rubber hose, a tire iron, and some leather pantaloons. That plan's details are not quite clear to me, but I have been assured it is foolproof. As for plan the ninth... Enter Eros, a space commander, and Tana, his colleague. Both are dressed in tinsel jumpsuits, sign of their alien military status. My good commander Eros and Tana, dost thou have a report that thou wouldst give? My dread lord, we but stop with you a while, while our ship doth regenerate its power. When that's done, we shall hie us back to Earth. Tis well indeed. What progress hath been made? We've contacted the mighty kings of Earth, but all do our existence strongly doubt. Pain, prideful Earth, what plan shall you set on? We've chosen Plan the Ninth, my most dear lord. Impossible it is to work with men. Their soul is too controlled. What plan say you? Ah, yes, reanimation of the dead. Have you attempted any of this yet? Yes, Excellency. What hath befallen? Thus far we've risen to and more to come. With our electrode guns we can control these risen corpses and make them do our bidding. Do living humans know aught of your plan? One constable we had to dispose of, but no live humans seen the risen ones. At least, no human who remains alive. Unfortunate it is, it must be thus. But humankind hath left us little choice. The dead shall lead the way for our attack. Yes, Excellency. Be it ever thus. Continue on. Report in two Earth days. And let me know the outcome of this fray. My love, I feared that His Excellency would our report have not taken this well. Earth people, as His Excellency knows, hath a contemptible spirit, and so our leader doth with patience overflow, though such at other times he would not show. Oh, Eros, how I wish this fight were done and you and I were back on our own world, sans dangerous and distressing thoughts of war, that thoughts of love again your mind could fill. Dear Tana, thinkst thou that I love thee not? The head is not more native to the heart, the hand more instrumental to the mouth, than is the love of Eros to thee, Tana. But yet, there's work to do against the earth, and honor to be gained in the attempt. The fig on thy damned honor! What good is it? Who has this honor? He who died a Wednesday? What good is it to him? Why, none at all. Can honor set a broken arm or leg? Can honor cure a fever or a chill? And can thy honor, Eros, warm my bed shouldst thou, my love, fall in this damned war? A pox on honor. Thou shouldst value me, who thou dost claim to love above such things. I could not love thee half so well, my dear, loved I not honor more. Good name in man or woman is the immediate jewel of their souls. An honor gained in fighting against the foe, doth brilliance add unto that sparkling jewel? If thou dost love me now, my Tana dear, how much more will thy arrows rate thy love when burnished by brave deeds? His manly name, and brighter still, sticks fiery off indeed. <sighs> Go to. I am resigned. 
Let's to the earth. What next impediment dost Eros think these human villains shall set in our path? Alas, as long as man can think, we shall humanity find problematic, dear. But those whom our electrode guns revive cannot think, for they still are but the dead, whose simulated lives we can undo. Now, mark you, how bizarre these humans be. The gift of thought they have, and yet are they afeard of those who cannot think? The dead? Well, our ship should regenerate it be, so let's to Earth to raise our zombies three. Enter Jeff and Paula Trent, again in their back garden. Yet here, my husband, aboard, aboard, for shame! The wind sits in the shoulder of your sail, and you are stayed for! Truly I do fear to leave thee here alone, lest some mischance do cause thee to fall into accident. And therefore, Paula, go thou to thy mother's. Oh, fie on that, my husband dear! My mother! Tis here I've made my home, and here I'll stay! Besides, most husbands try to keep their wives away from childish haviors of the past. Go not to thy dread mother, saith the man, that demigorgon who somehow gave thee life, lest she, like Hebe, did to Iolaus reverse the clock and make my wife a child. Nay, Paula, dost not comprehend my drift. Beshrew thy drift, my handsome man. Farewell. Go thou, like Icarus, into the air. But fly thee not near saucers, my good Jeff, lest heat from same doth melt thy waxen wings. For me, fear not. Thy safety, Paula, is the only thing for which I do fear. Pox upon the saucers! They sail the skies too high to do thee harm. That churchyard, though, is close, and that I fear, for something with a foul and profane air doth walk the night betwixt yon leaning stones. Oh, fear it, Paula. Fear it, my dear wife. The saucers are up there, and the churchyard is out there, but in here shall I be locked. Yea, safely in our house with bolted door. Now go, dear Jeff, the sky doth call to thee. Do promise thou shalt lock the door at once. So promise I. Besides, in half hour's time I'll be asleep with thy pillow beside me. My pillow? Why my pillow? What mean you? Well, something of thine must I keep with me to fill thy space in bed when thou art gone. Full many times at night hath I reached out in search of thee, dear Jeff, and found thee not. But when thy pillow's there, my mind doth make it a semblance of thyself for me to hold, and then my loneliness something abates. <laughs> Excellent wretch. Perdition catch my soul, but I do love thee. And when I love thee not, chaos is come again. I'll see thee soon. My husband flies whilst I remain below. Were it mine to choose, he'd never leave me so. And so ends Act the Three. And now a brief and historic word from our sponsors. Edward Wood's The Tragical History of Plan the Nine, Part the One, will be back right after these Elizabethan messages. Burn the Catholic! Burn the Catholic! Mercy! All I did was worship my god as I saw fit! Wicked Papist! Bind her to the stake for crimes against the English throne and the Church of England! 
Make a mortar of me and others shall follow, for I worship the one true church presided over by the Pope in Rome in his virtue. I, I say, why are there no flames? Zounds, I can't get this darn Catholic to burn. I think you used wet logs for the bonfire. It's never going to catch. Did you add any tinder? I, the smashed statues of saints, some reliquaries, even crucifix wood. Nothing works. Boo! Oh well, must be a sign from God. Time for some Christian clemency. Turn the other cheek and all, right good sirs? I know, try Papist Pyro burning fuel. Wait, what? That's right, don't let your martyrdom go up in smoke. Papist Pyro burning fuel can put a spark in any ecclesiastic execution. Where is that voice coming from? It is the voice of God. Tired of Catholics not burning evenly? Perhaps you can't find a good source of flames for that papist worshipping in secret. Look no further than papist pyro burning fuel. Yes, it burns monks, nuns, whole families, even those pesky scholars who insist the earth revolves around the sun. What's that about anyway? Yes, papist pyro burning fuel. Time to char a Catholic today. Also works on Jews and atheists. Hark, kids, ready for an all-new sort of dark toy from Scammo, the number one name in fun? It's Doc McNuffin's Plague Doctor playset! Doc McNuffin's Plague Doctor playset includes everything you need to cure your little brother of Black Death. <coughs> including this actual vial of Black Death! He's infected with fun. Neat, how do I play? First, put on Doc McNuffin's waxed fabric overcoat and creepy steampunk bird mask. This thing stinks. In order to protect you from the pestilence-laced air, the beak is packed with the strong smell of juniper berries, lavender, and Elizabeth Taylor's white diamonds. Now select the juiciest boobo on your brother's plague-ravaged body. Boobo, what a cute name! They're enormous blisters chucked full of blood and pus. <laughs> Next, lance the bulbous sore and drain the fluids into a nearby receptacle. <laughs> now mask the mixture of rose petals, crushed emeralds, and human feces into his open wounds. This is poo? I don't want to play anymore. Wait, Emily, don't forget to lash this plucked chicken to his festering lesions. <coughs> now, Billy, make sure you drink at least two glasses of your own urine before bedtime and you'll feel fit as a fiddle. Billy? Oh, he's dead. That's Doc McNuffin's Plague Doctor playset, only from Scammo. Hello, ladies. I'm Badass Ben Johnson. Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. Because Sunday be the Lord's Day. Live at the Swan Theater, it's Playwright Mania Wrestling. Black Friars and the Extreme Bard Federation present a ring full of furious ink stained wretches ready to roughhouse in the playhouse. In our opening bout, Thomas the Kid Kid will go measure for measure against Ravishing Robert Green in a nice soliloquy barbed wire brawl. Next, Macho Man Anthony Monday teams up with Stone Cold Francis Beaumont to face off with the Million Dollar Bard, Edward DeVere, and Ric Flair for some reason. And in our main event, the playwright of media champion of the globe, Killer Kit Marlowe, will do battle with the upstart crow, Billy Shakes, in an all the worlds indeed a cage match. 
The crowd goes wild at our inexplicable dumb shows and noises our rude and mechanical strut and fret upon the stage in tight, form-fitting hosiery. Arrive early for the bear-baiting exhibition for the kiddies. Oh, brave new world with such action in it. So come experience the all-night mayhem of Playwright-a-mania wrestling. It'll be a midsummer night scream. Good evening, friends. It's Hobbital Grimesby Prunepongle again, a disgraced gentleman barber surgeon. Upon Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth's extreme displeasure, upon rendering her royal favorite, Sir Francis Drake, simultaneously impotent and incontinent with an anal bolus of batwing and nightshade, whilst Drake was vigorously, um, reading poetry to the Virgin Queen in her royal bedchamber, I now happen to be, uh, on holiday in the Tower of London. I find myself in the care of Maggie Clitheroe and her express laundry and witch-pressing service. After enthusiastic application of Iron Maiden, Thumbscrews, and Bastinado, I am being pressed alongside two shirts and a pair of pants. <laughs> and with my remaining fingers, I confess on paper that I am in fact a witch. Yes, not a simple man of medicine who lovingly squeezes vinegar into a colicky baby's eyes, or lances a grandmother's booboos with a heated hat pin, and rubs coughing rats into her nostrils to cure the black death. <laughs> Nay, I am a filthy consort of Satan. <laughs> However, weep not for me. The Queen has promised me a full royal pardon, if only I can stop Sir Francis from uncontrollably filling his breeches with night soil. As for the rest of the court, the people of quality dislike me for having risen so high from such a lowly family. The rest say I am the main cause of them suffering from the genital stews. <coughs> However, I am hopeful that a poultice of mustard seed and bull spunk applied directly to Sir Francis's chin and beard will affect the relief desired. Every serious gentleman which barber surgeon knows the seat of the man's fundament resides in his chin. I have been strongly encouraged to flee to the new colony of Roanoke, and I have great hopes that my life of cutting and snipping in the new world will be a bright one indeed. So until next time, remember my cautionary warning. Stuff a suppository in Drake's bum, find yourself running from the royal runs. <laughs> I'm Harbottle Grimesby Prunepongle, limping off. <laughs> oh, oh, it hurts! You are listening to a holiday special presentation of Edward Wood's The Tragical History of Plan the Nine, Part the One, from the Independence Broadcasting System. Happy St. Patrick's Day from all of us at IBS. And now we return to our regular scheduled program. At the beginning of Act the Four, we are back in the cockpit of an aeroplane with Jeff and his co-pilot, Danny. Oh, what, Jeff, does this stony silence mean? What sayst thou, Danny? Oh, what say I indeed? I say something with no matter int but to break this pall. A glooming shadow doth or cloud thy face. And on this trip you've spoken not ten words. I do begin to think thou lovest me not. Huh. Oh, take it not amiss, my valiant Dan. My mind's preoccupied. 
and there's an end. We've three and 30 passengers back there who have the time to be preoccupied, for with a larger tether may their minds drift than may be given thee, who art in command, for this flybird doth not mistake forgive. Again, good Dan, flybird is not a thing which men of understanding do call planes. Thou canst not slang invent and call it truth. But broken though thy phrase is, thou art right. I'll now attend the instruments more close. Is Paula subject of thy meditation? Aye, Mary. Nothing's wrong betwixt you two. Oh, fear not that, my friend. Our marriage vows are knit together with cables of steel. Tis these strange omens that we've lately seen. Strange vessels in the sky and down below. The churchyard yawns as though Gabriel's horn had lately sounded, calling forth the dead. I like not her alone down there, whilst I, like an impotent god, do sit on high and survey all below, but can do naught. These crazy skybirds do surpass my wit, but fifty to one will I lay, my friend. By now, our valiant, worthy constables have this business at the churchyard unraveled. Once more, my good co-pilot, thou dost speak a word nobody uses save thyself. Why prate you about skybirds and flybirds, Dan? The very name of bird denotes the sky and flying to with no further addition. An ostrich flieth not. I pray thee peace. Leave birds entire, good gentles, I do pray. This conversation doth my ears infect. And Jeff, if for thy Paula thou dost fear, couldst thou not radio to ease thy mind? Good Mac should be on duty in the tower, and he to Paula will your love relay. Nay, Edie, nay, my worries are but air, and as the air itself invisible, break not thy sleeves from me. Oh, Edie, hark. Shall thou and I in yonder Albuquerque ball it up, my dear? What sayest thou? A pretty thing, ball it up indeed, when soon we will in Albuquerque be. In where I, Danny, in the sorest need, a ball in Albuquerque's not for me. If upon Albuquerque thou depend'st, for thou and I to ball it up, good Dan, then thee I've given o'er large credit for sense, for Albuquerque's a town sans Ilan. The tameness of that town shall cast a pall, and here's the end, no bawling shall there be. So back to L.A. go poor Danny's balls, turned now the azure color of the sea. Nay, Edie, dear, for I do have a friend. Peace, break thee off. Let us, dear Jeff, attend. He thinks on Paula's safety and does fear. Indeed, I read about the cemetery and the frightful haps that have been observed there. Said I not thou shouldst not have made thy home in place where thou must neighbor with the dead? He thought to live in quiet near the churchyard. Ay, merry quiet, quiet as the tomb. I pray your pardon, Jeff, I spake in jest. Alack, my purpose almost was forgot. I hither came to ask if you want coffee. I tell thee, Edie, thou art minstering angel. Aye, coffee would go well, my most kind Edie. I'll hence and back anon, and say, good Jeff, Thou shouldst maketh that call to ease thy mind. Why, Edie, thou art a rare parent-teacher. Like Sting's late career, thou repeatst thyself. Go to, thou rogue, go to. But, Edie, stay. In sober judgment, what think you, my dear, of joining in my Albuquerque ball? Alas, dear Dan, I can't resist your charms. So if in Albuquerque we must ball, in Albuquerque my defenses fall. Meanwhile, outside of the Trent House... 
few people near the cemetery marked the flash of lightning tearing through the sky. Yet from that flash arose the dead old man. A moment of danger. Enter the old man, the, the first one anyway, played by Bella Lugosi. A ghoul now, he whirls his cloak about him, then creeps silently into Jeff's house. Upstairs, Paula is sleeping. Hello? Oh, Mac, of course I am all right. But heavy slumber took me from the world a while. Do tell my Jeff that all is well. Fare thee well. Enter the old man. Uh, the one played by the second player. You know, Bella Lugosi's fake shimp. I know it's confusing. The old man advances upon Paula. Oh, murder, murder, murder! I must flee! Paula stumbles into the foggy graveyard, running for her life, pursued by the old man, played by the first player, Bella this time. Murder! Murder! Help! Paula runs from grave to grave, terrified, pursued by a taller old man, played by the second player, not Bella, fake shimp. Murder! Murder! Help! On and on, Paula runs terrified, her breath ragged, her dress torn, out of another tomb, the ghoulish yet oh-so-sexy Vampira arises and joins the old, old man in chasing the hapless Paula. Murder! Murder! Help! And then, insult to injury, the zombie horde grows. Inspector Clay, a pasty, massive, undead slab, eyes rolled back in his head, rises from a grave and pursues Paula. Enter Vampira and the old, old man, played by Bella. Please bear with me. Their arms outstretched. They all chase poor Paula. Murder! Murder! Help! The old, old man closes in on terrified Paula from right. And what's this? Yes, the young old man, played by fake Shemp, closes in from the left. The two old men meet in the center of the graveyard. Jesus, get off! You're creating continuity issues! Shit! Sorry about that. And both old men exit the graveyard. And still Paula runs. She rounds a bend in the graveyard, and in close second it's Vampira, followed in third by the old old man, bringing up the rear clay. The young old man is nowhere to be seen. It's going to be a close race. Paula maintains her position, Vampira is closing in, then it's Clay and the old man switching positions. The old old man moves into third place as Clay discovers a fresh ham in his grave. Ladies and gentlemen, I think Paula is going to take the trophy. This is an historic derby day at the graveyard. Oh, oh, what's this? Paula trips and falls. Paula trips and falls. The zombie throng closes in. Alack, I am undone. Oh, help, I swoon. Too bad. Looks like it's lights out for our heroine. But what's this? Hooray! A passing farmer enters the scene ahead of the undead. Why, how now? Could it be my lady Trent? What devils do pursue thy life, good lady? Fear not, madam, for I shall rescue thee. And with that, the farmer picks up the unconscious Paula and flees the scene. Fie! This fellow did our purposes subvert. Oh, tis no matter. Come, let us obey. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? 
When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. That will be ere the rise of sun. Where to meet? McDonald's. Nay. Good clay, thou ate thy life away. Shit. Fair is foul, and foul is fair. Hover through the fog, and fill the air. The diabolical zombies shuffle off, perhaps in search of more ham. Unaware of the ghouls, Patrolman Jamie and Patrolman Kelton enter the foggy graveyard. Alack, tis fruitless searching in this gloom when we know not the object that we seek. Not I, nor you, nor even the lieutenant do truly know what we do seek to find, so think I. Then wherefore are we here? For sure my watch did end an hour since. Demand me nothing, thou impudent wag. I work for hire and salary like thee, and no more a partner to lieutenant's thoughts than thou, a lordly duke bedecked in furs. Now to our duty. The two policemen proceed cautiously into the fog. A flying saucer on a string is lowered from above and flies across the graveyard. The effect is flawless. Two more officers of the law, Lieutenant Harper and Patrolman Larry, race to the scene to investigate. Alack, what crashing thunder in mine ears! Oh, Harper, knowest thou this clamor's source? Whate'er it be, tis no more strange, methinks, than all the strange haps else that have befallen in this churchyard. Perchance twas spirits damned, as Farmer Calder would have us believe. Pish, pish. The only spirits I did sense tonight were those I nosed to come reeking from his breath. Forget ye not, O Larry, Lady Trent. The smell of wine was not upon her lips, but in most dread sobriety did she tell o'er her fearful tale. Oh, Lieutenant, that tale we should not take as sober truth, for sure the lady was hysterical. Yea, frightened sure she was, thou sayest true. But look you, forget not her torn nightgown, and scratches raw upon her naked feet. The lady said something pursued her life through this grim churchyard. And these outward shows do lend a kind of proof to her report. For if thou showest the welt upon thy arm, then I am a fool to doubt thy tale of wasps. Lieutenant, I had clean forgot her wounds. Perchance this is why thou leadest this watch, whilst I, a dull and muddy-metalled rascal, do toil away in uniformed disgrace. Feed not upon thy breast for that, my friend. Sometimes tis fortune's favor, nothing more. But soft, tis Jamie and the brave Kelton, the rivals of our watch. What ho, good lads! Lieutenant, didst thou hear? How could we not? Oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange. Dost thou know what it was? No more than thou. This night doth brim with terrors. By my troth, were it not sworn duty to retain my post, I would from these strange horrors fly betimes. It was a flying saucer on my life. What makest thou so sure, Lieutenant? Rememberest thou the noise from yesternight? Aye, good my lord. Whilst memory holds a seat in this distracted globe, remember it. Why were we not knocked to the very ground? We were, tis true, but thou forgetst the sound. Nay, good lieutenant, nay, I take thy drift. The sound is similar, and that I'll grant. But what about that flash of light, good sir? Her like we did not see tonight, methinks. Hast not thou heard... Full many times a saucer doth lack a glow, or any light at all. Aye, truly that doth prove it, Lieutenant. If that be proof, then true all proofs but gas, for Harper did that proof pull from his ass. 
Good lieutenant, perhaps this nothing means, but in the course and duties of our watch, stout Jamie and I did espy a grave that appeared to have been sorely vandalized. What? Where? Well... Thy lips unloose, O Kelton, and do speak. Tis there, beyond the crypt. Do lead the way. This sudden mischief ill betides the day. Lieutenant, yonder lies the mingled grave. Alack, it has been broke into by truth. Oh, soft, my good lieutenant, tis not so. For if someone had broke in from without, the earth, methinks, would be piled up o'er here. But look you, sir, it's fallen into the grave. A goodly observation, true patrolman. And Larry, hark, if virtue doth no true advancement lack, that uniform will soon be off thy back. What right have we to further delve this business? Our stance is doubtful, for without the leave of this poor soul's true kin, we should not stir. But fie! This desecration must not stand. And sure this area doth look familiar, let's find out who was buried in this grave. Forsooth, the marker's cracked and fallen in. We'll not read that name while we do stand here. Well, let's go down and find out who it is. Oh, how? Oh, dullard watchman. While you've dawdled here, did crafty burglars take thee unawares and snatch away thy brain? Tis simply thus. If we would find the tenant of this grave, then you must into this same grave climb straight to read the writing on the fallen stone. Oh, good sir, force me not into a grave. I'll not as former tenant so offend by rashly usurping his earthen bed of resty turn. Pray, sir, choose someone else. By Jupiter! The fabric of my patience is so stretched the threads begin to pop. Now, Kelton, list. Art thou a member of this watch or no? And wilt thou, like a man, thy duty do? Or live a coward in thine own esteem, letting I dare not wait upon I would, like the poor bat in the cabbage? The poor bat? Good sir, methinks I know that adage not. Tis lost to time. Go to. I pray you, sir. Thou naughty varlet, get thee in the grave. Canst thou the name see written on the stone? Tis yet too dark. A torch, a torch, my kingdom for a torch. I have a match. Twill serve. Now let me see. Alack! Oh, woe! Oh, treble, treble woe! How now? Interjections? What meanst thou, boy? Oh, would that death had sealed it up my lips. Or ere they ope to this report deliver, tis Inspector Clay's grave, but Clay is gone! O oh, death, sat thou so lightly on his frame, that the brave captain simply shrugged thee off, as if thou wert a coat that liked him not. O oh, wert thou, Clay, so hungry thou didst rise, for clay thy grave was full of thee, but thou, not being full, as was thy true pastime, might get thee up again in search of lunch. The grave's a fine private retreat, but none there think I tacos eat. But nay, I saw thee dead and past all hunger. Tis likely as some mischief be afoot, and valiant clay's poor corpse is much abused. Come, friends! We'll find the villains who stole clay, and his full weight in their blood shall they pay. The police officers march from the crime scene with great purpose, ready to crack the case. 
there are soft, muffled cries from the grave. After a moment, re-enter Patrolman Larry, who helps Patrolman Kelton out of the grave. No man left behind. And now a brief and historic word from our sponsors. Edward Wood's The Tragical History of Plan the Nine, Part the One, will be back right after these Elizabethan messages. Oh no! Windsor is beset with the plague! After twelve children, only five survive. Forsooth! Oi, whatever shall I do with all these kitty corpses? It makes the cottage quite cramped. And the stench! Who will help us? No one, that's who! Chivalry is as dead as this pile of children! Fear not, milady, for courtly portly knights carrying corpses is here! It's Sir John Falstaff! Aye, in the flesh! Now, merry wives of Windsor! We're not very merry. Actually, I'm a little depressed. Sir John, all these disease-riddled caucuses are cramping our style. Oh, fear ye not. Simply hang a plague flag outside your door. If the courtly portly knights carrying corpses aren't there in 30 minutes, your first corpse removal is free. We specialize in takeout or uh, reverse delivery of the deceased. Best get them out of your hovel while they're still fresh and warm. In days of old, when knights were bold, we cleared out our own dead. Now, with my trustworthy assistant, Bardolf, Poins, and Pito, we can clear out yours. Oi! What if they're already rotting? And why are your men looting my house? Why, wizened crone, no need to worry. I'm 38! Aye, courtly portly knights carrying corpses will take care of even the nastiest of decaying dead. We clear out streets, homes, businesses, churches, even monasteries, all with our 30 minutes or free corpse removal policy. That's courtly portly knights carrying corpses. We remove your predeceased in 30 minutes, or your reverse delivery is free. Orders of four or more corpses qualify as bulk orders and are not valid for free service guarantee of less than 30 minutes or free. Having trouble getting your wares to and from the New World? Has your <coughs> worker relocation exchange been beset upon by those meddling Spaniards? Are you worried about being sunk by that fabled invincible armada? Then you need Drake & Company Maritime Trade Insurance. Drake & Company will go to the ends of the earth to make sure your cargo arrives at its intended destination safe and sound. For just pence on the pound, we'll provide an escort ship to fend off those gutless swarthy marauders. With Drake & Company, your captains and cabin boys can sleep soundly because we'll fully reimburse any losses, even if our claims adjusters have to board a few ships and acquire the funds themselves. From the refined shores of the old world to the rough and ready ports of the new, Drake and company are here to put paid to the feckless natives and pestilent freebooters and put you back in the business of expanding Her Majesty's empire one lopsided deal at a time. Good morrow, gentle listener. It's me, Baxter Buttercourt, here to tell you about my new food substitute, gruel. That's right. Why did an entire meal that requires preparation, taste buds, and the ability to chew when you can just suck down gruel and get on with your busy day. Nutrition and ingredient free, it's the perfect food substitute for workhouses, orphanages, cut-rate nunneries, 
in any other venue that your flint heart desires. So if you're someone who appreciates the bottom line, you'll appreciate Buttercourt's new gruel. Are you tired of walking down the street just to find yourself stepping in human feces that people have carelessly thrown out their house windows? Hi, I'm Robert Smythe, and I'm here today to tell you about my new invention, shoes with soles. Why should you be forced to settle for a leather bag that just hangs at the end of your leg like a do-nothing? When you could have a leather bag that hangs at the end of your leg like a do-nothing, but has a beautiful leather sole on the bottom. A leather sole that protects you from human feces. Up to 100% more human feces than even our nearest competitor. So if you've ever been in the office turd toe, poo foot, brown scrown, mud jack, or dung dropper, you'll appreciate the scrapability of Manu shoes. Now with soles. You deserve the elegance of shoes with soles. Available now from Smythe Shoes. Having trouble seeing shows at your local theater? Want more clarity from your stargazing? Need to be able to spot adversaries from a great distance? Then you need to invest in Tommy Diggs observational tools. If your box seats at the Globe aren't giving you the expected view, try some Tommy Diggs miniature binoculars. Need to figure out where you are at sea? Procure the Tommy Diggs sextant. Want a clearer view of the celestial bodies in the night sky? Tommy Diggs has an array of telescopes to choose from. No matter what you are doing, Tommy Diggs' superior sharpness and scratch resistance will give you an enhanced viewing experience that you will find quite the treat, whether watching your favorite thespians or on the lookout for that allegedly invincible Spanish armada. So if you need a clearer view, remember to look into Tommy Diggs. Hey, you need a horse? Of course you need a horse. Well, look no further. Here are Leah's Palfrey's You'd be mad not to. Purchase a new horse and carriage. The new 1601 Palfrey comes standard with iron hoofs, carriage harness, and extra cushions. Leah's Palfrey's has also gone mad with service. If your trusty steed that you've purchased has gone lame or maybe died from some kind of accident, who knows? We shall take your horse back and trade for a new one. You won't have to worry about a lemon spoiling your fun with your new horse. You have... The craziest deal in all of England. So ne'er delay and visit me. The, the mad king of England's horses. Leah's Palfreys. We're galloping mad over the competition. You are listening to a holiday special presentation of Edward Wood's The Tragical History of Plan the Nine, Part the One. From the Independence Broadcasting System. Happy St. Patrick's Day from all of us at IBS. And now we return to our regular scheduled program. And so ends Act the Four and this evening's play. It's quite the cliffhanger, don't you think? So many questions, and the eternal bard, Ed Wood, has left us guessing with his masterful dramaturgy and blank verse. What are these dastardly aliens up to? What effect do the flying saucers have upon the human undead? Will the officers find Clay's body? Will Vampyra grow her zombie horde? Why are there two old men in capes? Does Clay ever find more ham? Well, you'll just have to tune in and keep listening to find out. And I return you to the Opus Odeon Studio and Chetley Bricklestick. Thank you, Colonel Smith, and thanks for your service. It's an honorary title. I bought it online at the Kentucky Academy of Bogus Honorific Prefixes. I never advanced beyond PFC. Jerk.
Well, anyway, thanks to all of you for actually doing something educational for yourselves for once, and for listening to The Tragical History of Plan the Ninth, Part the One. And this has been Oposodion, our attempt to cram cultural knowledge into your thick Neanderthal skulls. Please tune in next week for the exciting conclusion to this saga, Edward's sequel, The Tragical History of Plan the Ninth, Part the Two. I'm Chesley Bricklestick, Cultural Director at IBS, signing off. And now for a word from our sponsors. Christ, are we off the air yet? Thank God now I can slip out of this stupid suit and tie. Friggin' hate this stupid getup. Now I can unbuckle my pants and let things breathe. Gladys! Bring me a double bourbon on the rocks, pronto. Thank you, toots. What? We're still on the air? Fuck it. We'll fix it in post. Cue the damn commercials. I said roll the goddamn ads. Fuck. Hello? Anybody still here? Is there Taco Bell over here for Clay? No? Steak and Shake? White Castle? Carl's Jr.? Oh, then Hungry Clay read end credits instead. You've been listening to The Tragical History of Plan the Ninth, Part the One. This radio play was adapted by Greg S. Talley and Ryan D. Smith from the theatrical play The Tragical History of Plan the Ninth by Ryan D. Smith. Based upon the motion picture Plan 9 from Outer Space by Edward D. Wood Jr. And the collected works of William Shakespeare. Dramatization produced and directed by Greg Talley, Rob Maynard, and Ryan Smith. Voice talent. Announcer 1. Jackie Naaman Jones. Announcer 2. Tonya Atomic. Chetley Bricklestick. Natalie Ryan. Colonel Ryan D. Smith, Greg Talley, Criswell, Troy Schultz, Jeff Trent, Rob Maynard, Paula Trent, Rebecca Heron, Danny, Darren Helwig, Eros, Dana Gould, Tana, Jamie Flowers Ashley, Edith, Quinn Keating, Old Old Man, Ryan D. Smith, Young Old Man, Ron McAdams, Vampira, Rachel Jackson, Inspector Clay, Ryan D. Smith, Lieutenant Harper, Frank Dietz, Patrolman Larry, Ryan D. Smith, Patrolman Kelton, Ben Haslar, Patrolman Jamie, Willie Golden, Colonel Edwards, Paul Derhagopian, General Roberts, Ron McAdams, Ruler, Tim Blaney, First Sexton, Ron McAdams, Second Sexton, Ryan D. Smith, Reverend Lynn Lemon, James Young, Farmer, Ian Morrison, Operator, Ben Hassler, First Mourner, Ryan D. Smith, Second Mourner, Kate Page, Soldier, Ian Morrison, Messenger, Ben Hassler, Music and Sound Supervision by Greg Talley. Original Foley art and music by Rob Maynard. Audio editing by Ryan Smith. Plan the Night theme song and additional music by Storm Di Costanzo. 
Vintage commercials produced by Ron McAdams. Vintage commercials written and performed by Jackie Naaman Jones, Ron McAdams, James Rowling, Natalie Ryan, Quinn Keating, Rob Maynard, Erica Rodriguez Hilton, Corey Hilton, Dina Dolphin, Ryan Smith, and Greg Talley. Radio Play Text Copyright 2018 by Ryan Smith and Greg Talley. Commercial Text Copyright 2018 by Jackie Naaman Jones, Ron McAdams, James Rowling, Natalie Ryan, Gwen Keating, Rob Maynard, Erica Rodriguez Hilton, Corey Hilton, Dina Dolphin, Ryan Smith, and Greg Talley. Stage Play Copyright 2018 by Ryan D. Smith. Production Copyright 2018 by Jefferson Hospitality LLLP. Promotional artwork by Ryan Smith and Greg Talley. For further inquiries about performing either play or radio play of the tragical history of Plan the Ninth, please contact Plan the Ninth at gmail.com. That's P L A N T H E I X at gmail.com. Now, Clay, go find food. The tragical history, Plan the Ninth.